Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I am so thrilled to welcome a woman who I look up to immensely, who I have gotten to know over the years and whose service for our country and her constituents is just incredible to behold. Today's guest is Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. It was a huge honor to speak with her and I'm so excited to share this conversation with all of you. Senator Gillibrand is a lawyer and a politician from New York who has served in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. Senator Gillibrand entered the world of politics in 2006 after winning a House of Representatives seat as a Democrat in a traditionally Republican region, New York. She went on to fill the U.S. Senate seat in 2009 after being appointed by then-New York Governor David Peterson. And in 2010, Senator Gillibrand won re-election in a special vote, becoming the youngest elected member of the Senate at age 43. Throughout her time in the Senate, Senator Gillibrand has led some of the toughest fights in Washington. She has been a major supporter of gay rights and equality, advocating for same-sex marriage and the repeal of that hideous don't ask, don't tell policy. She has worked tirelessly for women's rights, improved health care benefits for 9-11 workers and first responders, and served 
on the Senate Agricultural Committee to fight against food stamp reductions to protect America's families. And that's just to name a few of the fights she has taken on for all of us. In my conversation with Senator Gillibrand, we discuss her childhood and the impact that her mother and grandmother had on her career and her propensity to lead, the range of issues that she has taken on in the Senate, the ongoing pandemic, what it'll take to get real COVID-19 relief, the upcoming presidential election, and so much more. She is just an incredible woman, and I'm so grateful that she's here with us today. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sophia. I'm delighted to be on. I'm wondering, how how are you? How's your family with the pandemic and the the upcoming election? I have one child in school, which is great. He attends a boarding school, and they're actually in person. So Theo is very excited about that and is super happy. Um, He's a 16-year-old as a junior in um, high school. And then Henry, my 12-year-old, is remote, and he's struggling. But he gets to go to school for the first time next week. And he's so excited because it's a new school. It's a new middle school. And so he'll get to see his um, friends. And it's nice. It's going to be great. I'm super excited for him. Does does Henry's school? I, I'm hearing a lot from friends that some classrooms are sort of alternating to keep numbers of students That's in what school. He's, he's starting to do this week. He'll start alternating some kids on, some kids off. So they're gonna try it. We'll see if it works. Right. God, what a time just to have to kind of wait and see. I'm curious because you know you you obviously approach conversations like this one, talking about managing the pandemic, outcomes for kids and families in a, in a very dual way. In, in, right. the, in the personal, on the micro, you're talking about this as a mom of two kids. And on the macro, you come at this as a United States senator who's looking at things not only for the residents and families in your own state, but for the country. How have you experienced the pandemic as a leader in terms of witnessing what a lot of experts are calling a gross failure at the federal level from, from the president and, and the administration. What is your opinion of what's been happening here? So the biggest disappointment is we have a president who was unwilling to lead during a pandemic. He first obfuscated, said it wasn't serious. It was just a cold. Then he told people not to wear masks. And Every decision he's made has really harmed us. Um, He never used the Defense Production Act effectively to be able to produce the masks and the PPE in a timely way. He didn't use it for testing protocols. We still don't have rapid testing. We have shortages of swabs and reagents all the time. And he didn't put it in place for vaccines or for any, any reasonable approach for the president to use the federal government to amplify our ability to handle this pandemic. So it's been frustrating as a lawmaker and as a mom. And as a result, our schools haven't had the resources. Our public schools are struggling to reopen. When they do, they have uh, infection rates go up. There's not enough uh, resources to spread the kids out, to offer the PPE for the teachers. Um, to offer testing. I mean, it's it's very difficult. There's not universal testing available in New York. And um, in, in some places, it can take up to a week to get your results. So there's no way to then to effectively contact trace. So 
It's hard for schools to reopen. If schools aren't open, it's hard for parents to be working. For parents who are um, at home with kids who are learning remotely, you know, one study said that women who work at home with children get one hour of uninterrupted time a day, whereas the men in the household get three. So it's really putting in place some institutional sexism that unfortunately really undermines women and their ability to succeed in the workplace because they're still handling most of the um, parenting and most of the caregiving in their household um, and not even including all the chores. <laughs> so it's been hard. And I think for a lot of parents, they struggled during this time. Uh, but a lot of people are struggling because they literally don't have enough food for the table. Um, I've visited the food banks around New York state and whether you're in the five boroughs or upstate or on Long Island, every single one of them has exponentially more need and long lines to get access to the food. So in the five boroughs, lines go around the corner of people waiting in line. Uh, in upstate New York, the lines go on for miles. It's cars waiting to get pick up a bag or a box of groceries. So the need and the, the, the fear and anxiety is very, very real. And so I think this election is the most important election of our lifetime. We have to elect out Trump because he's so bad at his job and he's been so harmful on so many levels. And we need to flip the U.S. Senate because we need a governing majority that can actually pass forward the COVID relief for cities and states, for the PPE, for the uh, first responders, for health care, for food stamps, for rental assistance, and for unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a couple of things that I think are helpful for an audience to understand when we talk about things like the DPA, the Defense Production Act, um, vaccines, even ventilators. You know, Trump uh, lied, as he loves to do, and said that there were no ventilators left from the Obama Biden administration. But reporting that I've read has said that there were upwards of 16,000 available ventilators. And to your point, he did not once he activated the DPA, he didn't actually send out any orders for people to make ventilators, um, didn't send out any orders for people to make PPE. Companies started doing that on their own. And we've now learned that he actually awarded a contract for ventilators to some of his buddies and paid four times uh, what he needed to under the DPA. So it's a a huge waste of uh, taxpayer dollars to attempt to serve taxpayers who are suffering. And all of this has happened over the course of a year, which is ending when the president himself has received over $2 million worth of taxpayer-funded health care for his own COVID diagnosis, including getting access to remdesivir uh, and Regeneron, which most human beings in America do not have access to. I I guess Chris Christie did, but uh, the average person in an ER does not. What do you want the American people to understand about the difference between what he says he's done— in response to COVID-19 and what he's actually done? Well, President Trump has been lying since the beginning. Uh, I think there's a documentary establishing that he's been lying since the beginning that was just released in the last week or so. And in fact, he's not made the kind of health care available to all Americans. And while he's pushing through the Supreme Court nominee, he's unwilling to negotiate the next COVID package to get relief into the cities and states that is so desperately needed. So he's just, he's trying to mislead the American people and has been since the beginning of his presidency. So each one of us has a duty to lift up our own voices, to speak truth and to demand action. And I think this election is our chance to do that. 
Um, President Trump has done everything to stack the court against the American people. The next Supreme Court decision is going to be about the Affordable Care Act. And with um, a potential another ultra-conservative justice on the court, they may decide that people with pre-existing conditions don't get access to health care and that the, the health care providers aren't required to provide it no matter what. That's what the Affordable Care Act mandated. So for anyone who's had COVID, for anybody who's had cancer, for anybody who has allergies, like you have a pre-existing condition, you might not be able to get health insurance. And so it's a life or death issue, especially if you're somebody who has a needed access to health care. Um, it's shocking. And for any parent who has a child who's ill or a special needs child or anything, it's, it's really um, anxiety provoking and really um, undermining to our sense of security. And I think a lot of people are also dealing with that on top of the epidemic and unemployment. And it's just a lot. So I've tried to ask everyone I know and love to channel their anger and frustration into our elections and make sure people vote and know that everyone they know and love is voting and make sure they have a plan to vote and just work with others to get it done. Mm. I think it's interesting as well, you know, you bring up the Supreme Court nominee and and something that's really made me want to smash my head into the wall repeatedly uh, since the uh, Amy Coney Barrett hearings began was hearing this sort of Republican narrative that the Democrats want to pack the court when it was the Republicans who blocked Merrick Garland for 237 days, the Republicans who blocked 110 uh, federal nominees that that Obama brought to be nominated to, you know, federal judgeships all across the country. And since Trump's election, they've confirmed two Supreme Court justices and and appointed over 200 judges um, to fill those 110 seats they denied President Obama and then another 90. And what's strange to me is that there seems to be a not even a false equivalency, but a lack of accountability for the Republican side that the Democrats could never get away with. I mean, President Obama said it so well just the other day on the campaign trail. He said, you know, if it had been discovered that I had a secret bank account in China, they'd have been calling me Beijing Barry. And it's not even making front page news with President Trump. Why do you think that is? And and why do you think in particular Mitch McConnell decided to lead this crusade against letting President Obama get anything done? Isn't politics, regardless of um, party, meant to cross the aisle to meet in a bipartisan fashion to benefit the American people? Well, it certainly is. But Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are only focused on their own power and their own well-being. And so both um, have made a lot of money while in office. Um, One of the things that I want to do is have uh, Stock Act 2.0, which the first Stock Act was to say members of Congress can't buy and sell stocks based on non-public information, which several have done and did with non-public information about COVID. And then second, um, it to update it to say you can't get access to federal resources, whether it's the COVID epidemic package um, with PPP loans and grants from uh COVID-1 and COVID-2, or even just farm subsidies, unless you disclose it. Because there's a lot of Congress members, like 30, who benefited from the last COVID bill. So it's wow. it's really shocking, the amount of corruption in Washington. And so both Trump and McConnell are among the worst. Um, and in fact, I think that um, 
what what McConnell did with regard to President Obama was un-American. I mean, I think he really, his goal was to destroy President Obama and make sure he wasn't reelected. And then his goal was to make sure he had no legacy. And he spent all his capital doing exactly that. And to, to deny that Supreme Court justice even a hearing in March under the auspices that you can't do this in an election year, which was not, it's not written in the law that that's the case, but he did it in March. And now he's in October and he's still ramming one through. So I agree with you, the, the stacking of the courts and um, that is being done right now by Republicans. They took Garland, they took Obama's seat. They put in now three of their own, soon to be three. And uh, they are the ones who are packing the courts and they're doing it at the expense of people who are desperate for COVID relief. Because right now we should be governing and talking about COVID relief. We should not be ramming through this justice. And in fact, when you ask the American people, they say it should wait till the next president and the next Congress. It should. And, you know, McConnell is that duplicitous, duplicitous and that hypocritical that he's unwilling. And it's just about power. It just make no mistake, Sophia. It's just power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. It's just such a strange thing to watch as a citizen. And, and I know that I do have the good fortune of, you know, having been a political nerd for many, many years and studied journalism and political science in college. And, you know, I, I come into this not unaware, but even for me, um, a person who obsessively is, you know, reading the news every day, when I talk to my friends who don't, and I see the the shock when they hear certain facts, when they find out that, for example, the HEROES Act was passed by the Democrats in May, and Mitch McConnell won't hear it. He won't bring it for, for a vote. And now they're trying to blame Nancy Pelosi for not passing COVID relief when it happened in May. You know, these these things feel... They feel almost impossible because they're so flat out wrong, yet they happen. And and I'm curious for you, you have never given up. You are such a fighter. You are such a defender of the people. You have been advocating on quality, affordable health care in this country. You have been screaming from the rooftops and and really making sure that people have access to the truth. How do you see us being able to right the wrongs of this McConnell stranglehold on the Senate, um, of the mess that Trump has made of the White House. You know, even now, I I do just have to say, because I I would love to know what you think of this, all this nonsense about Hunter Biden, when we see the corruption with Jared Kushner, with Ivanka, with all of Trump's children working in the White House, Jared Kushner couldn't even get a security clearance. And Trump overrode it to make him a senior advisor. You know, these are things that are meant to not be allowed. And because there's such corruption in his own family, he's now trying to say there's corruption in Joe Biden's family. It's like, what is happening here? How do we, we the people who feel like no matter how much we're hitting the streets, no matter how loudly we're you know yelling and protesting, uh, no matter how many times we call the Senate to demand McConnell deliver COVID relief rather than mess around with the Supreme Court and he won't do it. He won't listen to us. What do you think is our best course of action to change this? The best course of action is to vote out Trump and vote out McConnell. We need 
four seats to have the U.S. Senate. We have seven races where we are, we are tied or up, and we have another half dozen where we are very close to closing the gap. So I would urge everyone who's listening to get involved in one of these races. You can make phone calls from anywhere for candidates who need help, and I'll go through them with you so you know where to call. The ones where we're ahead so far is Arizona uh, with Mark Kelly, John Hickenlooper in Colorado, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, and Sarah love her. in Maine. I yes. love them all. That's They're where so we're wonderful. ahead, but close, mm-hmm. all close, very tight, so you can help any of those. And then the ones that are closing the gap, we're closing the gap with Bullock in Montana, closing the gap in uh, Kansas with Barbara Bollier, getting very close in two Georgia Senate races, um, getting close in South Carolina with Jamie Harrison running against Lindsey Graham. We're also closing in on Texas against Cornyn with MJ Hager. And even in his own backyard, we've got Amy McGrath punching every day against Mitch McConnell directly. So those are really good races. And then you've got either even longer shots in places like, um, I think it's Alabama. It's got a race and I think Alaska has a race. So there's, there's opportunities here and there that are surprising, but real. And anyone can make phone calls for any candidate. They just have to call their campaigns and say, put me to work. And if you have resources, send money. The most you can give to each candidate is $2,800. So pick one, two or three, or give five bucks to all of them, whatever you could afford give, it allows them to get their vote out. Mm. And what do you think moving forward? Because there are folks who say, you know, yeah, we know we have to vote. We know we have to participate in the election. But then what happens? You know, this this year has revealed these undeniable fissures in the American system. How do we continue to push for substantive change? How do we reframe our ideas about what deserves funding? I mean, it's so ridiculous that we can say we'll buy five aircraft carriers when just one would fund three meals a day for every child in America in K through 12th grade. You know, these are, these are big ideas about what we believe deserves investing in. So how how do we move forward after the election and and be a better American collective? I think just um, voicing our views about how to rebuild better. Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris have a pretty robust agenda about dealing with institutional racism and institutional sexism and inequity in society. And it has to be about changing the social safety net, having equal pay for equal work, universal pre-K, affordable daycare, a national paid plan. That structurally allows more women and minorities to succeed in the workplace. Second, um, do direct job training because we now have millions of people unemployed, but use this moment of healthcare as a chance to train hundreds of thousands of new healthcare workers. Use the moment with global climate change to train hundreds of thousands of workers in green and clean energy. Um, Train hundreds of thousands of workers in the kind of infrastructure work for roads, bridges, sewers, um, dams, um, electric grids, any kind of infrastructure. So that's gonna be the, let's say the, the, the cornerstone of a new economy where everyone who's unemployed or underemployed gets the kind of job training that allows them to move themselves into the middle class using our community colleges and our state schools to provide that training for free. And if you're willing to go into public service, you can vitiate, get rid of all your debt. 
Um, I have several bills to do that, to either be proactively, if you're willing to go into public service now in any of these fields, green energy, healthcare, first responders, military, that your education can be fully paid for in a community college or a state school. And if you've already been doing public service for 10 years, that your loans can be uh, paid off by the federal government. So lots of ways to get at that problem, but that's what building back better looks like. And it's about institutional change as well as innovative thinking about how to tackle the greatest crises of our lives, which is global climate change, um, massive unemployment, healthcare uh, concerns, build all that infrastructure around those three big important issues. And that's how you create jobs and it's how you grow the economy. Mm. And it's possible. It's not only- It's a priority. Just like you said, Mm -hmm. instead of one one aircraft carrier, invest in funding for food so kids don't go to to bed hungry at night. So it's everything you do in politics is about priorities. And so you line up your priorities and we have to have really bold priorities because of this pandemic. Um, And we've seen the weaknesses in our system that we don't manufacture all the essential um, goods that we need. So we need 100% um, sourcing of American-made products for the next pandemic or the next natural disaster um, or national security risk. And we have to uh, create the job training so everyone who's unemployed or underemployed can get more resources so they can earn their way into the middle class. That's what vision is. And you do it by changing the structure from the bottom up and build it so that every person can participate in it. And a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of what I've been reading about your Restart Act. Can you tell us a little bit about that plan? Oh yeah, the Restart Act. So this was for small businesses. And what we have right now is a lot of small businesses that have gone under and couldn't get money from the PPP program because the PPP program required that you hire hire back all workers and, and keep them hired. Well, some industries like concert venues or restaurants or tourism venues or um, art houses, um, they can't restart their, their businesses in the way they were before because you can't put that many people inside. So they can't hire back everyone. So they were never going to be eligible for the PPP program. So this program is very flexible. It's bipartisan and it would provide grants up to $12 million per business to rebuild back and to make up for the losses that have made it un- impossible to pay their rent or, to pay um, their loans and to pay their people. So it's a great bill. We're hoping it's in the next COVID bill. Again, Mitch won't let us vote on anything. So it's not on the floor yet, but I think if we win, it could be voted on as early as January and that would make a huge difference. Something that always strikes me when you and I talk is how you consistently and in every position that you take and in every way that you show up for people, you always put the people first. You you always walk in a room saying, what can I do here? How can I make this space, this place better? And it it reminds me of what Hillary Clinton wrote in the foreword of your book. She talks about how the first time she met you, the very first thing you said to her was, how can I help? And she talks about how it's an integral part of who you are. And I think anyone who's had the pleasure of spending time with you, like I have, knows that and witnesses that. And I'm curious, because I always like to ask people who are doing these amazing things now what they were like back then. Were, were you, as a child, 
you know, were you the, were you the little kid who walked into every room saying, how can I help? <laughs> uh, sort of, but I, uh, I definitely liked um, helping people. I was a Girl Scout um, and I really loved Girl Scouts. I really liked trying to uh, sell cookies to raise money for a lot of the work they do. And that was fun. I liked um, earning badges and learning new skills. Um, and I really liked as a little girl uh, helping my mother and my grandmother. Um, my grandmother was my biggest role model in politics. And I remember her handing me a stack of bumper stickers and saying, Kirsten, go put these on every car in that parking lot. I said, really, Grandma, every car? She said, yes, every car. So <laughs> I was helping in any way I could back then. Um, but I do remember my first campaign headquarters experience when I was about 10 years old. And I joined a bunch of ladies stuffing envelopes so that they could uh, help their candidate that shared their values win. And so I re just remember that, you know, pitching in and doing what, what needs to be done is the best thing mm -hmm. that you can do for any cause or any person uh, that needs advocacy. Um, and so that's really what drew me ultimately to public service so that I could be a voice for those who don't have a strong voice or be a voice for those who no one listens to or be a voice for those who feel left behind. Um, it's why I take on battles that other people don't. It's why, you know, I go down to the front lines of Georgia and the front lines um, across the country fighting for choice in Missouri. Uh, it's why I take on the issues of hunger. Um, you know, how many lobbyists uh, get hired to advocate to end hunger? About zero. So these are organizations and advocacy groups that don't have a loud voice in Washington. So I fight mm -hmm. for food stamps. Um, I take on issues of sexual violence. Um, the fact that men and women uh, are chronically assaulted, harassed, um, demeaned, dismissed, devalued, and there is no chance for justice. Um, and those battles are hard to win. I mean, I'm still fighting in the military context to create a different system. I'm still fighting on college campuses. And just today, I met with the uh, women who are working on Time's Up, um, the Legal Defense Fund, as well as their advocacy arm, and how I can help them. Because my job as a U.S. Senator is to lift up these voices that are too often ignored. Uh, and last, it's one of the reasons why I made gay rights such a, a, a push and a force in my public service, um, not only uh, helping to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but leading pretty much all major legislation or at least helping all major legislation that gives LGBTQ rights, um, uh, put them at the forefront and making sure we have full equality. So it's what I like to do. And I'm really grateful I had the role models in both Hillary Clinton and in my grandmother to inspire me to want to help people through public service. Mm. And your grandmother, your grandmother's name was Polly Noonan. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Well, she um, grew up in the south end of Albany uh, to a family of very modest means. Uh, she never had the opportunity to go to college. Uh, she worked since the time she was 18. She was a secretary in our state legislature. Uh, and back then, women had so little political power. Uh, very few women were elected. Um, this is the 1930s. Uh, and she realized that um, in the legislature, women were all support staff. They didn't have a voice in, in the legislature. So she decided mm -hmm. the best thing to do for her was to organize the women, to ask all the women to join a club. They founded the Women's Democratic Club. And over many decades, these women actually became useful, powerful, and uh, made a huge impact on local politics. 
Uh, they learned how to run campaigns. They learned how to do the door-to-door and the envelope stuffing and the phone banking. They learned how to pick the right candidates. They learned how to uh, give voice to their concerns. And watching those women do what they do really inspired me. It made me want to do public service. It made me understand mm-hmm. that it was a noble cause and that through advocacy and grassroots organizing, you could impact all outcomes. And so that's what made me want to run for Congress um, when I finally did. But um, my grandma was just, she was tough as nails. She was often the only woman in a room of men. She was never afraid. She kind of had a bad, she had a dirty mouth. She spoke, you know, spoke like a sailor. She liked dirty jokes. (laughs) She thought it was a way to put men at ease. Um, But she was, she was lovely. She was just so full of life and loved her grandchildren, um, really doted on us our whole lives. And uh, she just always valued women and their perspective. And I always appreciated that. It made me have more self-confidence. It made me not afraid to run for office. It made me uh, understand how important public service is. And I, and I love that the example that was being set for you from such an early age, stuffing envelopes and, you know, putting bumper stickers up was really about how you've got to do the work if you want to see a real change. That's true. I think there's this, there's this complacent idea nowadays, and maybe it's always been around, but I think I'm, I'm cognizant of it at this point where people sort of assume that, you know, the quote adults in the room will handle it. And it's on us to handle it. It's on us to to fight for these things. And and when I think about, you know, your heritage and that matrilineal line, your 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 grandmother, I read that she used to roller skate down the, the legislature halls. She did. She you know, that was the, <laughs> that was probably in the early seventies and roller skating was very popular. And uh, she had her own pair. She loved to go to uh, roller skating rinks and she'd sometimes bring her roller skates to work. And then she'd roller skate down these long marble halls in Albany, which is just so funny to think about. When I was a little girl, we used to go to the um, roller skating rink that was in our town called Guptals. And as a seventh or eighth grader, it's I went to all girls school straight through high school. So it was where we got to meet boys. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But roller skating was just a thing back then, particularly in the 70s and 80s. And my grandmother was very much part of it. It was really funny. It's so cool. And and your grandmother, you know, being this political organizer, I imagine set such an example for your mom because when when you've spoken about your childhood in Albany, you talk about how your mom was one of the first working women in the neighborhood and and one of three women in her law school class. Yeah. So my mom was a role model too. So she um when she went to college, she was always a bit of a tomboy. When she was in high school, they, they didn't have any requirements that there were girl sports. So she didn't get to play a lot of sports. And so when she got to college, she took whatever sports were available. So she took fencing uh, and she took riflery. And those were literally the only sports she could be part of. She became a sports reporter. And back then they wouldn't let women in the press boxes. Uh, and so she's trying to cover a hockey match and the press box was up on a platform that was graded so you could see through it. And so they didn't let women up there because they were afraid that people could see up their skirts. And so my mother insisted on being allowed to be in the press box. And eventually um, they, they let her, but uh, she she was quoted in the Boston Globe because she went to, I think she was at Bo- Boston College at the time, maybe Boston University. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, BU. She was at BU. And 
they quoted her and she said, I didn't realize, but I'm at the forefront of women's rights uh, and um, civil rights and uh, equality. And she, it was very exciting for her. Um, and so she really was a role model for me. And then she wa- ended up going to law school. And when she came out of law school, there were very few women lawyers in Albany. And so mm-hmm. one of the groups of people she wound up helping because they came to her and you know couldn't find other legal um, help uh, was the LGBTQ community, which is one of the reasons why I've been such an advocate for LGBTQ rights my whole life. Uh, a lot of women um, couldn't, uh, they certainly couldn't get married, but they also couldn't buy houses together and they couldn't write wills to each other. So my oh, mother yeah. would do those things for them. Um, same with male gay couples. And so we winded up having this wonderful community of women and men in our lives and, you know, that were really considered part of our family uh, in the LGBTQ community. Um, And I really just got to grow up sort of seeing their lives very intimately. And so in the 80s, um, you know, one of our best friends died of AIDS and nobody knew what AIDS was when that happened. Like it was right in the beginning. And so for a teenage girl, that was pretty um, disturbing. It was pretty upsetting. Uh, to see that happen to someone that you know and to get sick and die so quickly was shocking for someone who was young. I mean, this man was probably in his 40s at the time, you know, just and beloved in the community. So that's really because of my mother is what taught me to care about communities that are disregarded, are left behind, are discriminated against and care about them as much as you'd care about your own family. So she really was a great role model for me. Um, in, in growing up because she was a great advocate. And I looked how, I liked how she um, used the law as a way to fight injustice. I really did love that. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm focusing this year and this moment right now on electing more um, candidates uh, who are left behind. So more women, more, more candidates of color, more LGBTQ candidates, so that we can have a diverser Congress, uh, diverser, that's not a word, a more diverse Congress. Uh, and so more voices can be lifted up. And so um, even in the last election, I helped 90 of the 100 women that won their congressional seats through off the sidelines. And this year, I hope to raise about a million dollars to help um, these communities uh, get more members of Congress elected to really represent them in terms of their own life experiences. Yes. And it's so important because to your point, if not everyone from every vertical of experience has a seat at the table, people are just ignorant to what isn't covered. People may not have considered in the era that your mom was helping write these wills. People just may not have considered that two women wouldn't be able to write wills to each other, but they couldn't because they'd never been represented. So they never had the same protection as other people who'd had seats at those tables. And, and that's one of the things I think is so important to continue beating that drum about representation, because it's when people aren't represented that they lose potentials for outcomes And all that happens when everyone gets represented, when everyone gets a seat at the table, is the tables get more fair for everyone. Nobody loses anything. Everybody just continues to gain. And that that makes me feel hopeful. Well, it's it's why I know that representation matters. It's why we want more diversity in Congress. Uh, It's why uh, we need to ask more women, minorities, and LGBTQ community members to run for office. Um, so that we can represent more people and have more people have a, a real seat at the table. Yes. 
For sure. Now, you talk about, you know, growing up, seeing the work your grandmother was doing and the work that your mother was doing. And I, I think about in terms of um, the ways that I was exposed to certain things in ways you were, I, I call it the privilege of exposure, that it's such a privilege to be exposed to avenues that are rife with, you know, intellect and diverse people and different types of love and community service. And and I'm curious how that exposure for you impacted, as you say, your desire to be a senator. How, how old were you when you knew you wanted to run for office? So in terms of um, getting to know some of the concerns and issues in the LGBT community specifically, um, I really started understanding it, it when I was a teenager. Um, in high school, um, just spending time with my mother's uh, friends, her community, understanding what was going on for these families, um, that really came to light at, in my teen years. Um, and when I was finally elected to Congress in 2006, uh, I realized that a platform in Congress and then in the Senate would really give me a voice to lift up these issues, which is why when a soldier came to me and told me about his experience being discriminated against in the military, uh, I wanted to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was the reason why I became so focused on what it would take to repeal that discriminatory policy, because for this young man, you know, he did everything right. He 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 was top of his class, well-regarded, but every day he was being forced to lie about who he loved. And he said it was crippling to his soul. It just made him feel worthless. And I didn't think that should happen to anybody else. So that's why I worked so hard to find Democrats and Republicans who would be willing to work with me to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And we were successful. We repealed that policy uh, within two years uh, of introducing and pushing that bill, actually probably within a year. So you should never underestimate the power of advocacy. It really does matter. And lifting up those individual uh, voices from service members who were being forced to be, um, to, to lie and to, to not tell, you know, their uh, service members, to the men and women they served with, you know, who they loved and who they'd want to be contacted. God forbid they were shot or killed. You know, imagine hiding your family. Like, it's just asking too much of someone who's already giving everything. So it just informs me on a lot of the issues that I pick up uh, because I've been exposed to those communities and those issues. That's so cool. So you get inspired as a kid. In your teenage year, you really start lasering in on issues. What what was high school like? I you write in your book that you liked organizing clubs. Um, what kinds of clubs were you organizing? Well, I went to an all-girls school. and Me too, really by the way. <laughs> excellent school. Um, so I had access to really good academics. Um, yeah. I really studied hard. I played sports. I played tennis. I played soccer. Uh, and I really um, began to develop a level of self-confidence and a level of um, certainty that I wanted to pursue advocacy. And so when I chose, um, when I went to college, I went to Dartmouth, I chose to go to law school right away because I knew that through law school, I could develop more of the skills I need to be a strong advocate. Um, and that's what led me ultimately 10 years later to running for Congress. 
Um, but I had a lot of aha moments. Um, one of the most interesting was when I was a young lawyer in New York City. Um, I remember when our first lady, Hillary Clinton, went to China. And I remember that moment so clearly because I had been an Asian studies major at Dartmouth. I'd learned to speak Mandarin from dorms in Beijing. And that conference was in Beijing. And I thought, oh my gosh, our our first lady standing on that stage making such a big, uh, such a big impact uh, for her to say women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights once and for all in a place that deeply discriminated against women, uh, that the one-child policy resulted in a lot of girls being put up for adoption, even girl babies uh, being killed in certain places in China. It's just, there was very few rights for women uh, at that time. So I was very um, inspired by her and was really upset that I wasn't invited to that conference. Um, And I realized I wasn't invited because I wasn't involved in politics. So that's really what drove me as an adult to start getting involved in politics. And that's what led me to start um, working with other women, to organize other women, to raise money for candidates, to do grassroots advocacy for candidates. And it led me to join groups to help women get elected. Um, I remember going door to door for one of our local state senators um, all through Harlem, knocking on every door of large, large apartment buildings. I remember um, campaigning with Hillary when she decided to run for Senate. Uh, And I remember helping a lot of um, presidential and gubernatorial candidates. And so I helped other candidates for about a decade before I got enough courage to actually run for office myself. That is so cool. Now, I I know a fun story, actually, about you from our mutual friend, Miss Connie Britton. Yes, I do. Because you guys were studying abroad in Beijing together. And she has this amazing story about how you— you got some students through a, a pretty scary rain. A rainstorm puts it lightly. I mean, we're verging on a, a monsoon sort of, you <laughs> it know. It felt like a monsoon. Uh, I, I, it's probably just a rainstorm, but it did feel very scary. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you tell me what happened? So um, Connie tells the story better than me, but apparently, um, because I, I do remember it, um, but apparently we were out shopping, having fun in Beijing on an off afternoon. And this huge rainstorm comes in and just just pelting down. And to get back to campus, the only way to get there was to ride our bikes back. And I think it was about a 20-minute ride. Um, But the rain was coming down so severely that you couldn't see right in front of you. And so I was getting very frightened. And I knew my girlfriends were very frightened. So I, I led the charge. And we started to sing like as many like childhood songs we could remember to just not lose each other in the rainstorm. And so we were just like belting out childhood tunes for the entire 20 minute journey in the rain. And so uh, Connie concludes from that example that I am indeed fearless uh, and will lead the way through any rainstorm uh, that's needed. So she's very kind to tell that story, but I can tell you a story about Connie. So um, (laughs) when we were in China, we were invited to the embassy uh, to go to their 4th of July party, the U.S. embassy. And so we went to the 4th of July party and they had a lip syncing contest. So Connie, who is the most talented of all of us, uh, not only um, choreographed us a routine, uh, we did a routine to one of the Madonna songs at the time. I'm not sure which one it was, uh, but we won first place. And so uh, Connie knew. I knew that and she'd be a great actor and she had limitless talent. So 
That's so cool. Her acting talent shown and uh, your skills for leadership, uh, even in a rough time, were apparent. It's interesting that you, you, you kind of always are who you are. Yeah. There's, there's also a story that you tell about your time on the squash team and your coach at Dartmouth. And I, I just think it's so inspiring. And I think that especially, you know, young women who are at home listening to this and, and finding their way, whether it's in service or sports, uh, for those big life lessons might really benefit from, from hearing that was sure. done. That you so uh, I really believe that sports is a great equalizer for girls. Um, when you have a chance to play a sport, you learn a lot of things. You learn how to work hard towards a long-term goal. You learn how to work past pain, work past anxiety, fear, exhaustion. You learn how to win and you learn how to lose. And once you take the fear out of losing uh, out, it makes everything so much easier. And so the, this one study about whether it's likely a, a woman will run for office, the only issue that correlates with the more likelihood of running for office is whether they played team sports. And my theory is, is if you play sports, you learn how to win, you learn how to lose, and it's not, you're not afraid of it. I think a lot of people don't run for office because they're afraid of losing. So I played soccer and tennis my whole uh, high school career uh, and part of grade school. And then I learned in law school, I'm sorry, in college at Dartmouth, uh, how to play squash. I was just on the tennis team, the JV team. And this woman comes up to me, her name's Aggie Kurtz. And she was the woman who founded all female sports at Dartmouth. And she's watching me play. And after my match, she comes up to me and says, you know, I'd love to teach how to play squash. Would you be interested in learning? And I said, oh my gosh, I would love to learn squash. So freshman year, I started on the squash team and I start practicing with the team. And I, I know absolutely nothing. And I start out at the bottom of the rung the lowest number on the totem pole. And over time, I, I learn, I get better and better and better. And by sophomore year, I'm playing like six or five on the team. By uh, junior year, I'm playing five or four. And by senior year, I'm, I'm safely and ha happily at four or five and I'm undefeated. Uh, but to get there, to learn that experience, to be undefeated, I had to lose first. And so when I was, I think a sophomore, uh, we were playing a match against Yale. And for whatever reason, somebody on our team was sick. And so Aggie asked me to play up. And so I played the number three player. And she was so much better than me. She It was like we played two different games. She was so good and I was so poor. And uh, we played one game and I got crushed. Maybe it was like 11 to one. And so I come off the court and I just burst into tears when I see Aggie. And I say, Aggie, I'm so sorry. I was just so terrible. And she says, don't worry. She said, you're just, you know, you got to just play the game. I was like, yeah, but there's nothing I can do against her. She's so much more skilled. I, I it's, it's so embarrassing. She said, Kirsten, your job is just to hit the ball, play as long as you can, as many points as you can, and do your best. Can you do your best? I said, yeah, I can do my best. She's like, okay, well, get back out there and do your best. And so I did. I played the two, I think it was two out of three. So I played the next game and she won. Um, and of course I didn't beat her, but maybe I got three points that go. And so I learned at that moment that it doesn't matter if you win or lose. It just matters that you do your absolute best, that you leave it all on the court, that you, uh, don't fear losing and don't fear even getting crushed. You have to just know your job is to play that game. And so I've been able to apply that in politics my whole life. Um, when I first ran for Congress in 2006, no one thought I could win. Um, in fact, the only person who thought I had any 
any hope of winning was my mother. Uh, and that's no joke. Because um, my mother's tough. Like by the time my mother was my age right now, she was a secondary black belt in karate. Um, my mom was known to not only cook the Thanksgiving turkey, but shoot the Thanksgiving turkey. So she was a tough woman who was fearless. And so uh, I learned that from her. So in my first congressional campaign, um, my opponent demeaned me, dismissed me, devalued me. He name called, he called me just another pretty face. And of course I said, thank you. But then of course, talked about all the ways I was different from him uh, and how I wanted to get our troops out of Iraq and how he was a rubber stamp for Bush and how uh, I wanted Medicare for all. I actually wanted people to be able to buy into Medicare at a price they can afford to create competition with the for-profit insurance companies. And I ran on that in a two-to-one Republican district and won. So my, you know, experience in sports just taught me, you know, you got to try. If, if you don't run, you you have no chance of winning. So by running, you have a chance and yes, you might lose. But even if you lose, it doesn't hurt that much. You just got to keep trying. And so I ran and won. And then I ran re-election against another opponent and he was mean and demeaned me, dismissed me and name called as well. But I beat him by 24 points. So I can, I can give advice to any woman or any person and just say, you only can win the games you play. So if you're not playing, you have no chance of winning. So why don't you just try to play? And that same is true for public life. You know, if you don't run, then you can never serve in elected office. So just try to run, try to win, and then you may get to serve. So I tell a lot of young candidates that all the time when I'm recruiting them, that it doesn't matter if they win or lose. It just matters that they try, that they lift up those voices and issues that perhaps uh, no one else is, is willing to lift up. Um, so maybe you want to run for office, Sophia. I'll help you. Hey, give me a couple years and then I'm in. I would do it when you're young. Um, younger's better because then you have more time to like get the experience you want and keep working your way up so you can be governor or senator or president someday. Don't wait till you're older. Do it now. All the all the dudes do. <laughs> they run when they're like 12 because they can. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So there's no reason why you shouldn't be running right now. That is very interesting. I, I, I'm curious for you about when you decided that you were ready to run because you were working as a lawyer. I'm, I'm curious about what that experience was like and what kinds of cases you were working on and, and when you realized that it would be more about being an elected official than an attorney that would help you make these greater changes. Yeah. So um, it took me a long time to get confidence. You know, just like you said, you know, you, you're not quite ready. I didn't feel like I was ready. Uh, when I went to an event, when I joined a women's group, my first political group as an adult, and I went to an event and Hillary Clinton was the speaker. And she looked out into the group and she said, decisions are being made every day in Washington. And if you're not part of those decisions and you don't like what they decide, you have no one to blame but yourself. And for whatever reason, I'm standing in the back and I am so nervous, I start to sweat. I'm thinking she's talking directly to me and that she's telling me I have to run for office. And I didn't feel ready. Just like you just said, I don't feel ready. I didn't feel ready. And so what I did to be feel ready is I got involved in campaigns. And so what I did is I started helping other candidates, learned how to um, raise money from women, from lawyers. I learned how to write policy papers for candidates. Uh, I created lawyers committees for presidential and gubernatorial candidates so lawyers could write white papers on issues they might want to run on. I learned how to do really good um, and organized grassroots campaigns, helping other people to um, go door to door so our candidates could be successful locally. 
And I did that for about 10 years. And I also went to two campaign training schools. I went to the Women's Campaign School at Yale. I, I went to three, actually. I went to the Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Campaign School. And I went to the um, Women's Campaign uh, Forum Campaign School. And by the time I went to all three, I felt like I could run. <laughs> so I did. Um, and I you know, got good advice from Hillary before I ran. And she told me, uh, you know, when you run, you always have to run out of conviction because win or lose, you need to know you did the right thing. I think that was excellent advice. And I still uh, rely on that advice today. Um, so I just think that women need to just see themselves and have faith in themselves that their voice, their experience, uh, the issues that they want to work on are really valuable. And if they don't run, then perhaps no one runs who will talk about um, those those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it goes back to representation. If no one is speaking for the experiences that we as women have in the rooms where policies are being made, those policies will not be inclusive of our experiences. Exactly. And, you know, Sophia, your age right now is the exact age I was when I started running for Congress. So wow. just so you know, you have more than enough experience. Oh, I love that. Thank you. My gosh. Well, Sophia, it's so great to see you and to talk to you. Um, I can't wait till I'm next on the West Coast so I can see you in person. But thank you for being such an amazing advocate and for galvanizing women all across the world um, and to have people be focusing on such important issues. And your work on climate and your work on women and girls is inspiring. And I just want to thank you for being a voice for goodness and a bright light in these dark times. Thank you so much. I That means the world to me coming from you because I, I feel all of those things for you and you're such an inspiration. I can't wait to see you in person. Thank you for everything. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Thank you.